Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a show about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who obsesses about science. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And today we're going to talk about peak TV, which is a new phenomenon where TV is just like proliferating and multiplying and exploding. And basically there's just a million TV shows out there. And then we're going to like run out of TV and we're going to have to like find an alternate source of TV somehow, wind powered TV. We're going to just have to start telling stories to each other around the campfire again, possibly with like flashlights under our faces. Uh I don't know. But for now, there's a million TV shows and we're going to talk about why that's amazing and why it's also kind of confusing. So the past 10 years have seen kind of an explosion in the number of TV shows. And I think that the last number I saw was that there's 450 TV shows a year, like dramatized, like scripted TV shows In the per United year States alone. In the United States. And this is a result of the sheer number of channels that are out there. Because now in addition to a million cable TV channels, you've got streaming channels like Netflix, you've got Apple TV, you've got Amazon, you've got Hulu. And there's just a bunch of channels that used to not have scripted TV shows, like MTV used to actually show music videos. It's kind of hard to believe at this back point. Back in ye olde days. <laughs> yeah, back when uh, we all had buggy whips. Yeah. But um, I mean, I think that's true of, as you said, like many channels, like Court TV has scripted drama and mm-hmm. things like that. So there's a, a proliferation of really, I think what we're talking about is mostly scripted TV, although, mm-hmm. of course, they're part of peak TV is also reality television as well. There's just so much television and you know the History Channel now has Vikings and has some other shows and the History Channel used to be just Hitler (laughs) and now it's Vikings and Hitler and it's confusing. Vikings are like the prehistory of Hitler. It's true. White supremacists, you know, they need their history, they need ancient history, they need medieval history, they need they need you know, all the modern history. history. Like it's important to cater to their needs. But yeah, and so you've had this explosion of the number of TV shows, and that has meant that a lot of TV shows are getting really adventurous and weird because you have to stand out from the other 450 TV shows out there. This has coincided with a time when there's also a huge proliferation of the number of movies. Like I think that the number of movies with like giant budgets has been going up year on year, but it's also increasingly only movies that are kind of big franchise pictures like superhero movies or Star Wars or Jurassic Park. Partly because it's really hard to compete with TV in this this Mm -hmm. era of peak TV. And so part of peak TV is just what you're describing, like that there's this proliferation of channels, but also it's kind of the peak of television's influence over pop culture in that you know, people know what Game of Thrones is, even if they've never watched it. People have heard of Westworld, even if they don't care about robots. And this was the case, for example, with Battlestar Galactica, which was actually one of the early moments in peak TV, where, again, it was like a TV show that just captivated people. And I think it used to be that movies did that. Um, It used to be that, you know, conversations were about movies. And I think not that there aren't conversations about movies, but I think increasingly it's it's television. Yeah, I mean, 10 years ago, you saw the rise of the term water cooler television, which was the idea of television shows that you would talk about around the water cooler at work, like Lost was a water cooler, cooler TV show. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so tired to say that. Um, uh, Lost was a water cooler TV show. Ba- Battlestar Galactica. Like Slack TV. Like, what yeah. TV are you talking about in your Slack Exactly. Channel? It's all Slack Same TV idea. now. And, you know, that was a rare phenomenon in the past. Like, people obsessed about, I guess, who shot JR. And I'm, I have no, I still 
don't know who shot Jr. I'm guessing, you know, <laughs> PQ shot Jr. I don't know. Some other set of initials. Yeah. And I think, know. I mean, generally when we hear the phrase peak TV, like people bring up Twin Peaks, the original Twin Peaks mm-hmm. in the early 90s as being kind of, an again, an early example of this kind of you know, it's not just about a glut of television. It's about a certain kind of television. It's it's quality television, something that is on par with movies in terms of storytelling. And I think partly that idea comes from, you know, believing that maybe TV is kind of crappier than movies. And at this point now, we know that's totally not true. And there's no nobody thinks that like being on a hit TV show is crappier than being in like a medium sized movie. I mean, you would just never I mean, that would never be a question. Yeah. And of course, part of what's happened is that actors who used to only appear in huge movies are now starring in TV shows. And part of the whole sort of water cooler thing and the thing of like TV shows that we obsess about is the kind of mystery element. Like you mentioned Battlestar Galactica and like part of it was like the whole thing of who's a Cylon. And like, here's a moment where they talk about that. If you're a Cylon, I'd like to know. (laughs) If I'm a Cylon, you're really screwed. (laughs) <laughs> it's hard to remember now, but we used to freaking obsess about the mystery of who was a Cylon and what the Cylons were and what their plan was. And and I mean, that's now kind of spilled over into Westworld, which pretty much, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say, pretty much has borrowed that exact plot is who's a robot and who isn't. Um, and that was a huge part of the first season and it's becoming, and in the second season it was also even more of a question. So I think that in Lost is the same thing. And I think that, you know, also there's soap opera type questions as well, like soap opera mysteries. And I think that's why Mad Men was such a huge hit for, you know, because people were like, how is this soap opera going to end? Like, it's not the mystery of what's in the box. It's the mystery of like, who, you know, hooks up with who and whose marriage falls apart and who gets a job and stuff like that. So I think that peak TV, I mean, I, I want to acknowledge that, like, this is not a term that you haven't heard before. I mean, people have been, like, hand-wringing about peak TV for a couple of years now in the media. Like, it's been, you know, a topic that's that's come and gone, but it's particularly relevant now because so many shows are on the air. Like, it, it used to be kind of like, whoa, there's lots of stuff happening in TV, but now it's like... It's insane. Like everything is getting a show, <laughs> like yeah. which is great on one hand. Like, and you know, on one hand, it's really great because thing books that I never would have imagined becoming TV shows are like Nettie Okorafor's novel Who Fears Death, which is amazing. Many people know Nettie Okorafor's work from the Binti series, and Who Fears Death is going to be like an HBO series, and that's like amazing and. It's it's just incredible to like live in a time when like a super smart sci-fi fantasy story about people in Africa is being turned into a show. Yeah, and Victor Laval's Changeling is becoming a TV show. A Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff is being turned into a TV show by Jordan Peele, who uh, directed Get Out. Um, you know, N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy is going to be a show on TNT, or at least it's in development. 
And, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, one of the ways that you stand out from like the pack in the sort of peak TV era is by getting weird and challenging and kind of like shows like Breaking Bad blazed a trail for that. I think you mean Breaking Bad. This right. is the Judas Priest version of Do-do-do-do-do, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad has been a huge influence on how people think about storytelling and characters. And then the other way that you kind of stand out from the pack in the peak TV era is just by taking something from the 90s, anything from the 90s, pretty much like if somebody had an infomercial in the 90s for like a soap product and just bringing it back as a big TV show. And that's like the other kind of part of this is that everything from the 90s is back. Part of the struggle for places like Netflix, for example, when they're bringing a billion TV shows to market is they want something that people have heard of before. And, you know, people grew up in the 90s. And so it's nostalgia. So that's one of the downsides of this peak TV phenomenon is that, you know, you're getting really creative, weird stuff. But you're also getting just like horrible rehash of like garbage that we weren't really that into the first time. Or maybe we were, but like now it's completely out of date um, or it just isn't the right show anymore like Roseanne. I guess Murphy Brown is coming back as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting to see that still in this era where there's like 450, I don't even know if that's the current number, TV shows, there's still a lot of TV shows that don't get picked up that are put into development. They did an Ameri a Greatest American Hero show, which sounded like it was going to be amazing. And they filmed a I bunch of episodes. I remember you telling me like, this is going to be the greatest. And I was like, no. And I you still you really excited. want that show. I, and they gave it a season pickup. And they gave it a season pickup, which means that they probably filmed a bunch of episodes and then the network was like no nah, we're not going to use this and so somewhere there's a bunch of episodes of a greatest american hero reboot with a female hero Meanwhile, which we're never going to get to see freaking live in a universe with like iron fist getting a second season like what yeah. the fuck okay seriously no <laughs> but so part of what goes along with like the rise of peak tv and being unable to keep up with so many shows is the phenomenon of binge watching which netflix strongly encourages and you know, they kind of talked about this in this one segment on the PBS NewsHour. Binging until recently was a word usually associated with the meals we enjoy during the holidays. Not in this golden age of television. New TV series debut almost every week. And among avid viewers, there's a feeling that you can't keep up. I love how she basically just ties it together and is like, we can't keep up. And that's why we're all binge watching. And by the way, this isn't about Thanksgiving turkey. It's something that I think creators aspire to, but it's also something that we kind of know is unhealthy and it, it isn't something that is necessarily good. Like there's it's a it's a way of relating to narratives that seems vaguely problematic. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be really fun. I mean, you and I have experienced this personally, the thing of just like sitting down and watching like 10 episodes of, I think, Supernatural we did that with and Vampire Diaries we did that with. Steven Universe. Steven Universe. And like it can be really satisfying, partly because something that happened in episode five that gets mentioned in episode 12, you're like, oh, yeah, we watched that like a few hours ago or whatever versus like we watched that like a month ago. Although ironically, the two shows that you mentioned that it is true that we binge watched Supernatural and Vampire Diaries because we were behind those are actually not shows that were necessarily made to be binge watched. The the shows that are made for binge watching are things like Luke Cage or Westworld, which is weird because, again, Westworld is actually not all dumped at the same time. But basically, it's shows that are 
super complex and they have an arc you know it's not it's not episodic they are uh, what's the term that people use for it that's episodic serialized serialized they're more serialized very they're more serialized meaning they're just more soap operatic and so i think that when people are making tv to be binge watched the the problem is one they fall into the because they want to get people to just sit there and watch a million shows at once, they will sometimes fall into the lost problem of having mysteries within mysteries within mysteries that just finally go all the way up their own butt and then like out their own mouth and then up their nose again. I mean, it's just like the worst, (laughs) like whatever can, however many orifices you can stick your mystery up, it'll happen. And then it gets really boring because it's like, oh, there's never any payoff. But uh, but I'm like hooked because I want to know like where, you know, which orifice is the mystery going to go up? But then... The other problem, and you've talked to me about this a lot and really kind of taught me about this, is that a lot of these shows will just become really slow Mm -hmm. because they have so much space to spread out. And so you'll get an episode that's like literally watching someone drool, which actually happens in the show Legion, which I would say is a show that was designed for binge watching. There is like a long scene, like several long scenes of literally watching people drool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a two sided coin, like most things. It's it allows for richer storytelling. It allows for more layered storytelling. It allows you to make shows that actually reward people for paying attention. Whereas I feel like I can remember when it seemed like a lot of TV shows were being made so that you could go up, get up, go to the bathroom, make yourself a snack, and come back having missed like five ten minutes of the show and still be able to follow what was going on. I feel like TV shows now are kind of designed to kind of reward you for really paying close attention and hitting the pause button if you want to go pee. And I think that that's interesting, but I think that, you know, it does kind of sometimes lead to just this kind of relentless, you know, deepening of the mythos to the point where it's like just a bunch of stuff and it doesn't mean anything. One of the reasons why so many of these successful, most interesting shows are adapted from books is because books will have this deep backstory that the author worked out on the page. And like the classic example of that is Game of Thrones, where uh, George R. R. Martin has literally written an encyclopedia that kind of goes into every single aspect of like the past 2,000 years of Westeros history. And like, for example, just listen to Jamie Lannister talking about like the Mad King. You heard of wildfire? Of course. The Mad King was obsessed with it. He loved to watch people burn, with their skin blackened, blistered, and melted off their bones. He burned lords he didn't like. He burned hands who disobeyed him. He burned anyone who was against him before long half the country was against him and that's the kind of thing that really rewards people who for obsessing about the backstory and all of the complicated stuff right it's not just like oh there was this bad guy in history it's like no 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 like he has this whole connection to people alive now and he had this whole, we we learn about like all these things he did and then that later gets deepened because we learn even more ancient history about the people so it's like yeah it's not just you know, here's the bad guy. It's like, here's 2,000 years of bad history. (laughs) And, you know, maybe it allows you to see patterns of abuse and how things that are happening now are kind of tied into terrible things that happened in the past and how there's these cycles. Yeah. So this brings me to a topic that we want to talk about, which is the wikiization of television, which is just basically the way in which so many of these bingeable TV shows and TV shows that are very complex in this era of peak TV 
basically can't be understood without a wiki. It's also that they lend themselves well to the kind of thinking that leads to creating wikis. And in case you're wondering what the heck we're talking about, we went on YouTube and found a very old video of someone explaining wikis, which I thought was delightful because it sounds like it's from the 50s, but it's, it's actually just from the early noughties. This is the new way. Yay! Most wikis work the same. They make it easy for everyone to change what appears on a web page with the click of a button. It's as easy as erasing a word and rewriting it. So basically, we're just talking about any kind of software that's like Wikipedia or Wikia that are built on top of an ed editable web page. And now I feel like people use this as a compliment. Like they'll say like, wow, that show makes me want to make a wiki. Yeah, and I feel like this is one of the ways in which TV shows are really rewarding deep fan involvement because it's not just sitting back passively and like staring at the screen and maybe, you know, drooling a little bit to have a callback to Legion. But <laughs> it's also about, you know, getting actually involved in fandom and creating something. And it goes along with fanfic and fan art and fan which theories. We were talking about and a few wikis weeks ago. often yeah. kind of like lead to fan theories and I personally like there are a lot of things that I cannot follow without a wiki like some of the really deep Star Wars stuff about like what the heck happened in all oh those different God. cartoons I look at, okay so I look yeah. at Wikipedia all the time yeah like, I really do like if I'm tr ex exactly like if I'm trying to figure out like wait who's this character I thought I saw them in a comic book was it was it that was it a different blue person with a weird protrusion on their face I don't know yeah and you know memory alpha for Star Trek has memory alpha and memory beta and memory beta is the stuff that's kind of non-canon that was published in Ooh, novels and comics. I didn't know that. That are not canonical. I've totally gone to memory alpha like way too many times. Yeah. And I think with Wikipedia, you can click a button and get like the non-canon stuff. It can be like, well, if you oh. want to know the non-canon, maybe that's the Doctor Who wiki that has that. <laughs> that's like, well, there's the canon stuff. But then if you want to know what all these books and tie-ins that did, that's probably not canonical. Yeah. And it's super interesting. And like Steven Universe, I look at the Steven Universe wiki every day because I get so confused about like all the different gems and the gem war and all this stuff. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting to me because it used to be that back in the dark ages, for example, the movie Cloverfield, you could not <laughs> By the dark ages you mean like ten years ago. Like ten years ago. Like <laughs> two thousand eight. Before this YouTube video was made. <laughs> yeah. So so you look at the movie Cloverfield and it's just about a giant monster stumping around New York and going rah and uh -huh. like these people who were having like some dumb party are like running around and trying to find their girlfriend or whatever. I don't even remember. And there's pubic lice. Pubic lice is probably one of the best parts there's of that movie. There's some super pubic lice yeah. in that movie. But when you looked at the alternate reality game, which was consisted of a bunch of viral videos and a bunch of like fake websites and a bunch of other stuff, you would actually understand where the monster came from and how it happened and how there's an evil corporation that caused the monster to be unleashed. And, and some how kind of terrible soda. Slusho, which yeah. was like a kind of a weird Easter egg. And there was just all this stuff that was only not even hinted at in the movie. Like the movie had like a couple of little Easter eggs that kind of connected you to that stuff. Yeah, but it, it's true. It's not It's not in the movie. But if you wanted to understand the plot of Cloverfield, you had to follow all this other breadcrumbs that the fans had dug up that had been left there for them. And that was kind of frustrating and weird. And so now instead we have wikis where fans kind of dig up like little hints and clues and pieces of information and throwaway references and stuff like little bits of exposition that someone mentioned when someone was naked on Game of Thrones and we were all kind of zoning out. And, <laughs> you know, all these little bits of information get 
collected and cataloged and kind of collated and cross-referenced yeah. by fans. I mean, fans. that's certainly what's happened with Westworld on Reddit. And Jonathan Nolan, um, one of the show, one of the showrunners along with Lisa Joy, he loves that. Like, he's on Reddit all the time, like, reading the fan theories and adding to them and, like, rewriting episodes because he wants the plot to be more confusing or more, more difficult to guess at. Um, and so I think... Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that's what people strive for. Like, I really feel like with Westworld, especially because I did have a chance to to talk to Jonathan Nolan about it a little bit. He considered that to be a win that people were obsessively dissecting it on Reddit and creating a wiki. And and of course, like Cloverfield, Westworld has this massive alternate reality game associated with it, which which is their website and a bunch of other stuff with lots of hints and maps and additional information that you can get if you if you want to go down the rabbit hole. I feel like it used to be that if you wanted the reader, the viewers to understand something, you had to spell it out. You had to mention it a bunch of times. You had to signpost it. You had to be like, this plot point or this piece of backstory, we're going to mention it like 10 times to make sure you get it. Right. Whereas yeah. now, I feel like probably creators know on some level that they can mention something once in passing and the people who really care about understanding all of the big picture and all of the wrinkles and all of the plot holes and the different ins and outs and whether everything holds together will go and look on the wiki. And if it was like five episodes ago or 100 episodes ago, they'll go and find it. Dude, and they'll like they'll screenshot shit. Like mm -hmm. if you just have like a brief shot of like a computer monitor or like a piece of of the maze that's inside someone's like scalp head <laughs> that's a reference to Westworld not a spoiler um, and you know people will screenshot it and like analyze the hell out of it which I often find delightful like when I was watching person of interest like fans would always screenshot stuff from that show that was actually really important to understanding the character of the machine who was the AI who was one of my favorite characters and um, one of the best AI characters on TV I guess my question for you Charlie because you give good writing advice. I feel like you're just, you're really smart about this stuff. And I, I like, do you think that that stuff is necessary for enjoying these stories? Like, are these stories, I guess like it's, I have two questions. Like one, like, can I enjoy some of these stories if I'm not in the wikis? And two, are these stories relying on the wikis to make them good? I mean, those are interesting questions. And obviously it's a case by case basis, but also I think, it really comes back to what we were saying about Cloverfield, where you can enjoy it on different levels. You can right. enjoy it as giant monster comes and stomps things, a handful of characters have to survive or do whatever the hell they were trying to do in that movie. <laughs> they, and, I don't think any of them survived, which is why I love that movie. I love that movie on so many levels, but like I love the fact that they all die. That's great. Or you can get really steeped in the mythos. And on to some extent, like what we were saying before about Lost and Battlestar Galactica and you know some of these other shows. Westworld. Westworld. I would almost rather have the deep mythos and kind of complicated, like twisty, where how deep does the rabbit hole go, be something that's kind of like a dog whistle that only the people who really care about that stuff are going to see versus you know, have it be something that gets talked about for 20 minutes, you know, if you're going to have that stuff. I personally am not a fan of like how deep does the rabbit hole go? How many clues can we clue it up with? 
I'm just like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Like, I just care about the characters. I care about what's going to happen to the characters and what they're dealing with. And I feel like if you want me to be interested in a plot thing, you have to make it really directly related to the characters versus like, I know that there are people who really enjoy mysteries and like want to kind of puzzle out that stuff. But and a th- good mystery also has awesome character. Mm-hmm. Like people do not love Sherlock Holmes because they've created, well, I'm sure there is a Sherlock Holmes wiki, but like they're not in it for like, oh my God. And then there was this one little thing over here and like this other thing. They're like, I'm in it for Sherlock. Like, and yeah. yes, Sherlock is good at picking up all those little details, but like that's why the mystery is good. But I some think. people really love puzzles. I'm not one of those people. I don't do puzzles for fun or whatever. I don't, you know, I'm not a Sudoku fiend or whatever. <laughs> Maybe what we're really describing is kind of the gamification mm-hmm. of TV narratives because I think a lot, I mean, I know for sure with Westworld that part of what inspired the writers and creators was games. I mean, it is a game. It's a show about a game. And of course, in the second season, that becomes even more explicit. But I think that... I worry, like with something like Westworld, which um, I keep bringing it up because it's a show that I'm really invested in. Like it's a story that I think is an important story. I think that some of the characterization of artificial intelligence in that show is the best I've ever seen in on screen. And it's super smart. And at the same time, I feel like it's hobbled by the fact that it just depends so much on this kind of wiki-ish uh, backstory where like people can't really make it through the story um, and enjoy it without being like okay fine I'm gonna go to the freaking wiki and find out about all the different backstory all the different guys who made this company and like what their internecine relationships are with some other freaking guy who has like different instances of himself um and like because every why is it on that show like every fucking dude has like multiple instances of himself but like women are singular like that's just like whatever i don't know it's a mystery it's a mystery but basically you find yourself in a maze of twisty passages all alike and then you try saying x y z z y and somebody (laughs) appears out of thin air and says them's fighting words and then you get like whacked or whatever um that to be clear, does not happen in Westworld. <laughs> if <laughs> that it was did, I would be super excited. Um, but I think that's a like, spoiler for I, Zork. I do feel like, I mean, maybe that was like a trick question that I was asking you before because I wanted to answer it where I was saying, like, do they become too, too dependent on these wikis? But I feel like some narratives, they're, they are held back by that. Like, I feel like Westworld is an example where it's like they wanted so badly to create a show that would spawn conspiracy theories among their among their enthusiastic fans that they kind of lost sight of some of the stuff you're talking about which is just like I just these are great characters like and there's a fantastic corporate conspiracy plot already we don't need like 90 layers to that I just want to see Tandy Newton killing people like all over the place. Right? Like, just I killing am, a million people. I am all in. I am I'm like, yeah. She Maeve, the character she plays, Maeve is like my leader. She's leading my revolution right now in my mind and heart and, yeah. and other parts. I guess my thought, my final thought is that you know, like I said, it could be good if it works on two levels. If you can enjoy it on just the level of this is a really fun adventure and then like there can be this other level for people who really enjoy the puzzles and enjoy the kind of like mythos stuff, they can have their thing. 
And, you know, if you can have both at the same time. Yeah. Like, and I think that's what's great about something like Memory Alpha or, you know, like some of these other, because you have to have that. Anytime you have a narrative that lasts for like multiple generations, like Doctor Who and Star Wars and Star Trek, um, these are stories that like people watch with their grandkids because they watched it when they were kids. So, yeah. All power to those wikis. So we're going to close out this episode with a segment that we're calling Research Hole, where we talk about something that we've been researching and kind of gotten obsessed with. And why don't you go first, Annalie? What are you obsessed with researching this week? I think I was researching 18th century Caribbean politics, which that's a whole thing. Why was I researching that? I'm not going to tell you. And I stumbled across information about the Haitian Revolution, which was a slave uprising in 1791. So just a couple of years after the French Revolution. And it surprised me because I didn't realize there'd been a slave revolution that early. But the really weird thing about it was that it also involved reparations. So was this reparations like they paid to the former slaves? No. So that's what I thought initially, because like all right-thinking people, I've read Ta-Nehisi Coates on reparations, and I'm totally down with the modern definition of, you know, the, the reparations program. But this was something else. The people who revolted and set up a independent government in Haiti paid reparations to slaveholders, former slaveholders and plantation owners in France in order to be recognized as a nation. And they couldn't afford it. It was too much money. So they had to borrow money from French banks in order to pay reparations to slavers for, I guess, what, stealing themselves? So they became an independent country, but they were immediately saddled with like crazy levels of debt, it sounds like. Yep. And so that's the story of the first reparations for slavery in which the former slaves were horribly fucked over. So I much prefer the contemporary (laughs) definition of reparations where, in fact, former slave owners pay the slaves for having destroyed their lives. And how long did that go on for, though? This went on. They were paying off this debt for over 100 years. And of course, it completely crippled the Haitian economy, which is still, um, you know, in great debt, and is then the country is still struggling to be uh, economically independent and sustainable. And it's only in like the last, like 10, 20 years that there's been any discussion of of real what I would consider to be real reparations, where you know the French government actually pays. Haiti for all of the money that they stole um, after already stealing a bunch of people. It's just hard to believe that they could actually force that on them, that they were able to make that happen. I think because there were not any other independent, you know, former slave nations, and they desperately needed international recognition as a country, right? So it was basically, my understanding is like, it was like, okay, either you pay these reparations or basically you're under embargo. So you're not going to be able to trade with anyone. So... Yeah, they were they were strong armed. And I just I love that little cherry on top of like, and you'll have to borrow money from us to pay us. It's just like the perfect example of moving from outright slavery to, you know, kind of uh, post-colonial economic enslavement kind of world bank shit Um, (laughs) like a little little early example of the world bank. So. What are you? What kind of a, a research hole did you fall into? Yeah, so I was a guest at a convention called Diversicon, and we were talking about Theodore Sturgeon, and somehow that led to me getting obsessed with researching Ellery Queen, who was one of the most important mystery authors of the 20th century, and at one point was like 
one of the most read authors in the world. I think his books were like millions of copies. Wow. And, what what era was that? I mean, I think it started in the 1930s. Okay. And basically, Ellery Queen was a collaboration between these two dudes who were cousins. Mm-hmm. And they both used false names for themselves uh, in addition to using the pseudonym Ellery Queen. Uh-huh. And they occasionally had another pseudonym for a different mystery series. And then they would appear as, the, as Ellery Queen and the other fake dude together um <laughs> but it was awesome. these two so dudes they would pretend to be ellery queen in public yeah and actually the first time they had to be in ellery queen in public i think was 1932 so i think they'd been doing it since the 20s and they were invited to come speak at a some kind of mystery conference in 1932 and they flipped a coin to see which one of them would actually show up as ellery queen and one of them did and he wore a mask and he gave a whole speech about writing mystery novels wearing a mask and then i guess left and you know, but that's the, delightful. Yeah, and the, <laughs> do we know what kind of mask it was? Or that's we don't, lost at least time. as far as All I right. know. Also, in their novels, Ellery Queen became the fictional protagonist of the novels written by Ellery Queen. Whoa! And so, Ellery Queen in the novels was a mystery writer whose father was a police detective who would occasionally come to him and say, we've got a tough case and I can't crack it and I need your help, son. And so Ellery Queen would go and help his dad to solve mysteries in New York. So this and is so, very meta. It's super meta. So it's Ellery like, Queen is writing mysteries about Ellery Queen solving mysteries. Yes. And it's like Ellery so Queen, the Ellery mystery Queen. author, writes about Ellery Queen, the mystery author, who solves <laughs> mysteries in his spare time. And it's just... And I guess it's like Castle or something, where isn't he like a mystery writer who's also he solving is. mysteries? It's also like Murder, She Wrote. I mean, it's a fond tradition, which I think Ellery Queen started. And there were multiple Ellery Queen movies and TV shows and radio shows. And actually, here's the intro from one of them. Match wits with Ellery Queen and see if you can guess who'd done it. Part of the Ellery Queen mystique was that towards the end of the book, they would say, you've seen all the clues that Ellery Queen has seen. Can you solve the mystery before he does? And it was like a little challenge to the reader. There'd be like a little page of like the Ellery Queen challenge. And like it was like a promise that all of the clues were there on the page. And if you had read carefully, you could arrive at the solution that Ellery Queen arrives at at the end of the book. They could have used a wiki. They could have totally used a wiki. Yeah. And the part that got me interested in it is that later on when the two dudes got really busy and they started an Ellery Queen magazine and stuff, they hired other people to write the Ellery Queen novels, which those didn't typically feature Ellery Queen as the protagonist. And they had Jack Vance write a bunch of them. Oh, they had Jack uh, Vance, the sci-fi writer. Mm-hmm. They had Avram Davidson, the sci-fi writer, write a bunch of them. And they had Theodore Sturgeon write one of the Ellery Queen novels under a pseudonym, under the pseudonym Ellery Queen. And yeah, presumably all of these people were writing as Ellery Queen. They were this all writing like as Ellery Queen. Carolyn they shopped Keen, it out. Right? Carolyn Keene, who wrote the Nancy Drew books, who right. was like actually a whole bunch of different people. Yeah, and, and by the 60s, it was definitely Ellery Queen was a bunch of people. Most of them were sci-fi writers who just needed a little extra money on the side. And, Did you they know, bring like sci-fi themes into the books? Or? I don't think so. I think that they were just straight-up mystery novels. Theodore Sturgeon's Ellery Queen mystery novel, which was called A Fine and Private Place, which is also the title of a Peter Beagle book, was acclaimed as one of the best mystery novels of all time. And then people were kind of slightly shocked and, you know, maybe put out when they realized that it was actually written by this other person who was already an acclaimed science fiction writer. And so possibly the most beloved and acclaimed Ellery Queen novel was actually written by Theodore Sturgeon. Wow, that's so interesting. At that point, it's basically like writing a Star Wars tie-in novel mm-hmm. or something like that. Where it's it like, totally is. Because, I mean, you know, obviously when someone comes to you 
with that proposition, if you're a well-known writer, you know, you take the job partly because, of course, you love Star Wars, but also, you know, they got some money. I mean, it's funny that you mention that because the first Star Wars movie was novelized and the novelization is credited to having been written by George Lucas, who was actually Ellen Dean Foster. Uh-huh. I thought you were going to say it was Ellery Queen and I was going to be like, full circle. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, Ellen Dean Foster, by the way, wrote a ton of amazing he novelizations did. of movies. Um, he, like, and turned Star it Trek into episodes. An, yeah, he turned it into an art. Like, I, all power to him because he's, like, amazing. And his own novels are also amazing. But, yeah, no, and I think... Also, Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind are written by other people, like famous authors, but credited to Steven Spielberg on the book. That is so funny. I mean, that gets into like a whole other thing of like, how do you credit, you know, novelizations, which I think now we just credit it to the actual author because so many famous authors actually do, yeah. you know, IP tie-ins and stuff. If you have Jeff Vandermeer writing your Predator novel, you want people to know, you know what? This was written by Jeff frickin' Vandermeer. Which he did. He wrote yeah. a great Predator novel before Annihilation. But yeah, his Predator novel like is totally on my list of cool uh, tie-ins. But, um, but now I so- wish that the Star Wars novelization had actually had towards the end of the book, like, you've seen all the clues that we have. You know, <laughs> could you solve the mystery of Luke's parenthood I before just want Luke Ellery does. Queen to like be a character again. Like, a, I want a new Ellery Queen movie, and I keep thinking that Ellery Queen is a lady just because Ellery is such a like <laughs> ladylike name. So I want Ellery Queen to be this kind of like fifty-something detective who's like you know writing books and like I don't know. I want it. I want it to happen. You know, I, I want Ellery to come back. Now that we're talking about every old TV show coming back, I'm suddenly like, I want Murder, She Wrote back. Yeah, I think a lot of people would want that. I don't think Murder, that's she just wrote. you. Yeah, I think Murder, She Wrote. Or just like a crossover, Murder, El- Eller, Murder Ellery Queen wrote. Yeah, Murder, they could team up. I think, why not? You know, um, and like, and James S.A. Corey could be in there too, because that'd be another like two dudes writing under a different name. Although they don't have a character named James S.A. Corey in okay. the expanse, do they? Word up to James S.A. Corey. <laughs> like, please, please write a book about James S.A. Corey writing space operas, but also becoming involved in a space opera. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll get right on that. <laughs> All right. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, you've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct, which I'm sure now you totally believe now that you've heard all of our <laughs> amazing opinions about what's next for James S.A. Corey. Thank you so much to Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission for engineering this. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And also thanks to you, our listeners. Um, you can find us at Apple Podcasts. We'd love to have you review us there. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us on lots of other places that carry fine podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And you can do all kinds of other stuff. You can support us. You can make a wiki about us. Make a wiki about us. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I want you to do. All right. See you in a couple weeks. Bye.